What's on my heart today is the whole issue of fasting. And I really want to explore this. Um, I can say from experience, but from the Word of God primarily, because I do believe that as a Christian, we need to, if we are not in the habit of fasting, we need to be, because if we don't, we're missing one of the blessings that God has for us. Many of us as Christians, we're living in a, in a frame of mind that, that we need to bless ourselves by taking control of our lives and, and, and ordering our Christian life the way we want it so we can have a successful, blessed life. What many Christians haven't realized is that if we let God take control, as Jesus said, if you're willing to lay down your life, then you'll find your life. And you see, if we're willing to do what the Lord says, the blessing is far beyond what any man or even yourself can ever bless yourself. So I'm going to be dealing a lot with Isaiah 58, and it's a, it's a powerful passage of Scripture on fasting. But before I get into it, I want to say a few things about it. it the, the first thing that we would notice when we read Isaiah 58 that the, the term fasting primarily belongs to the whole category of food. And it's, it has reason for that. Uh, food, there's just something about food. I, I heard a guy say one time he just lost about 30 pounds in a strict diet. And he said, my problem was there was just something about food that I liked. And so he'd lost control of it and put on a lot of weight. And now he was working to take it off. But food is constantly before us. It's almost impossible to pick up a magazine without recipes in it and diets in it and to watch television. It's on there. They're advertising it. Our conversations often turn towards food, especially you ladies. You, your conversation turns towards recipes and what you're eating and what's good for you and what isn't. And then, of course, are the health fads. And food has really become one of our national gods. And so it's logical that God would, in his desire to have us denying ourselves something that is really precious to us, is very powerful. Food is not evil. Uh, at Christmas time, you roast the turkey, you have lots of vegetables, lots of good stuff, chocolates and cake and all. That's not evil. If it's out of control, it would be. But if, when it's under control and it's logical what you're doing and a blessing, because especially in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel had a festival, the main thing of that festival was honoring God, but also they always had lots of food. God blessed them with food because he wanted to bless them. And he wants to bless us with food, but he expects us to have control of it. So there's something about food that really gets a hold of us, and it's because it is such a, a large part of our everyday life. However, food is used by the Lord to tempt people, Adam and Eve. He used food to tempt Adam and Eve. Then there's Esau, Jacob's brother. Jacob um, had sold 
pardon me, Jacob had bought Esau's birthright, his inheritance, with food. And Esau was short-sighted enough. Um, it only happens right now that really matters. I live for the moment type attitude and sold it to him. But it was food that cost Esau his inheritance. And then God used the food in the, in the wilderness with the children of Israel. It was food that he many times lack of to test them to see if they would trust him. They basically failed the test as Esau did. And then in the wilderness there was Jesus. And what was his temptation? Part of it was food to make these stones into bread. So we know food is something that we love, we cherish. And so when it comes to denying ourselves in order to move in a, in a, a greater degree towards this, the heart of God, food is one of the things we say no to for periods of time in order to bring ourselves into a deeper fellowship, a deeper awareness of his spirit, a deeper awareness of what he's saying and what he's doing. Very common all through history. Although the church today in this North American English population, it's, it's more of a rarity to find evangelical Christians fasting. It's probably more common in more of your little churches where they have Lent seasons, where they give up stuff. But for those of us who call ourselves evangelical, um, there's not as much fasting happening as there was in the old days. Matthew 24, verse 38, says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, you might say, well, none of those things are wrong. People are eating, that's not wrong. They're drinking, it doesn't say they were getting drunk or anything, that's not wrong. They were getting married isn't wrong, and they were giving their children into marriage, which is not wrong. But you see, when, when Jesus spoke that, he spoke it because there was a total focus on the physical, and God was ignored, God was displaced by these things. Because we're to seek his kingdom first, we're going to go into that verse later on. But we're to put him first in our lives. That's the first commandment of the Old Testament. It's the first commandment of the New Testament, to put God first in our lives. And so it's important that you realize we need to enjoy food. We need to use it where we need to keep nourishment, to bless people. But it needs to be under the discipline of the Holy Spirit and ourselves as we say no to it at certain times in order to move into a deeper realm of spiritual understanding. In Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul here speaking to the church at Philippi. He says, I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So what are the enemies of the cross of Christ? 
Their destiny is destruction, he said. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. So that's, Paul's describing exactly what Jesus talked about. Their focus is food. It's not on God. It's not on what is right or wrong or, or being aware of gluttony or some other um, thing that might be produced because of too much eating. They just focus on food. And so it's not unusual that God would say, when you fast, let's look at food first. Other disciplines are not wrong, but let's look at food first, he would say. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That means we shouldn't be doing the fasting for ourselves primarily. We should be doing it for the glory of God. You might say, well, is it wrong to fast if I need the Lord to reveal something to me. If we're maybe short of money in our home and, and we need to find out what's wrong, is it wrong to fast? No, it isn't. But you see, that can become a, a self-centered thing. Or you can say, our lack of finances in this home does not bring glory to you, Lord, because you said you'd supply all our needs. So we don't want your kingdom to be looked down on because we don't have the fight. We want your kingdom to be honored and glorified. Therefore, we're seeking you through prayer and fasting to know what the problem is here. Seek first the kingdom. Again, it's important. There are many biblical examples of fasting. There's many Old Testament prophets. They fasted, and they called the people to fast. And then in the New Testament, Jesus was our example, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry, it says. Now that, some people that have studied this would call that a partial fast because water was still involved. It doesn't say he was thirsty. He just went without food. And so it's called... A, a, a fast where people are called to go without food and water would be called an absolute fast. But this was a partial fast, which most of us need to understand is, is the safest, because if we go without water, even for a day, it can affect us. After three or four days, it can really damage us, of course. Now, there's another example in the New Testament. Her name was Anna. She was a widow. And you'll find her story in Acts chapter 2 when Jesus was brought to the temple as a baby. And it says that she was a widow. She was now um, 84 years old. And she just lived in the temple. And she lived there where she worshipped day and night. And she was fasting and she was praying. So we don't know what the length of her fasting was. It's just that she committed herself to saying, I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray, I'm going to stay here and worship, I'm going to do it for the glory of God. There's no indication she was doing it for herself, she was doing it for the glory of God. Paul, after his conversion, 
he went without food and without water for three days. That's called the absolute fast. And I don't recommend it unless the Lord has specifically called you to it. If he calls you to it, make sure that you take precautions, but it needs to be understood. If the Lord has called you to it, he'll get you through it, and you won't suffer from it. In Matthew 9, verse 16, Jesus talks. They're talking about fasting. Jesus answered their question. He said, when you fast, please note, he never said, if you fast. He assumes that his people will be fasting at different times when they feel a need for it or when he calls them specifically to do it. But there needs to be a decision made within your hearts and your mind. Say, I'm going to start to be a person who determines to fast once in a while for things that I need, a friend that needs salvation, somebody that needs healing, somebody that needs to understand what ministry they're supposed to go into. I'm going to fast for them. You need to make a decision because there's a, there's a, a, a demonic block against so many of these things that fasting seems to tear that down because it has power. When your flesh is told you don't eat until I tell you to, there's power in that because the spirit within you has overcome the flesh or the carnal nature or the old Adamic nature, which the Bible calls it all three, but that desire within us to do what we want to do. And we're saying, no, I will tell you when you're going to eat. We're not eating for this X number of hours or number of days. And that has power in it. The enemy recognizes that. That's why he doesn't want you doing it. And I remember in the first times that I fasted, how the enemy be there, and I get a little hunger pain in my gut or something, and he's right there, oh, you're hurting yourself, you're really damaging yourself. Listen, there are very few people, unless you have a medical condition, that cannot go without food for two or three days without any trouble. Most of us can. So it's the enemy trying to keep you from fasting. The spiritual benefits, I'm going to bump again into Isaiah 58, but just to take from verse 6, the spiritual benefit, Isaiah listens this way. He says, it's to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, when you see injustice... Maybe it's against you. And that's, a, that's something against the kingdom of God that you say, Lord, this injustice doesn't make people see the kingdom of God in the right way. So you're fasting to get that injustice corrected. That's what he, and then he says the cords of the yoke, those things that bind you. The yoke is a discipline. And when you say the cords of the yoke, it's not of God. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. So we're not talking about Jesus' yoke, the yoke of discipline and serving him. 
We're talking about a yoke the enemy has put on. It can be a religious thing where you have all these religious rules and all this stuff. Fasting can help to break that stuff so you can get the proper yoke that the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to have in serving him. It says to set the oppressed free. We all know people that are suffering oppression. We might call it depression. We might call it demon, demon possession. We might call it a number of things. But it says that fasting will set them free. For years we've done seminars on, on curses and deliverance. We still do them. And for years we've had a, a group of intercessors and have asked them many, many times to pray for the session that we have on a, on a coming Saturday. And I asked them, if possible, please fast and please pray for this seminar. Why? Because it sets the oppressed free. And I believe it's not because of me or our ministry that people receive freedom. It's because the fasting and the prayers of our intercessors have broken the bondage that kept these people um, under the power of the enemy. And it says, and break every yoke. The yoke that I talked about a minute ago, when it's broken, that means you can't wear it again. And that's what we want. We not only want the cords to be taken off, we want that yoke to be fixed finally so we don't have to wear it again. And a broken yoke, in those days, the yokes were made out of wood, carved out of wood, and it can be broken never to be used again. And for our nation, we need to be recognizing that fasting for our nation can be powerful. There isn't a nation on planet Earth that doesn't need intercession, prayer, and fasting. All of us need it. Governments need it. The churches need it. Families need it. We need to be people of prayer and fasting. Because in 2 Chronicles 7.14, don't forget God promised Israel this. He said, if my people, that's the church, who are called by my name, that's the church, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked waves, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so he doesn't mention fasting in there, but he does say, if you'll humble yourself, and David in Psalm 35, verse 13, he said, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. So when I humble myself with fasting, I am saying to my flesh, I take your pride and I say no to it. You cannot have what you want in your rebellion and your pride. I humble myself and I do what God wants me to do, what I want to do for his kingdom. That's how we humble ourselves. Esther had to pray and had to seek the Lord through the people of her, of her nation to start fasting and praying. The king had been duped into by a man named Haman to have all the Jews put to death. But Esther, who happened to be the queen, they didn't know she was Jewish background, but she had to send a note to her uncle Mordecai, who, she, who had raised her. And you see, the, the, the note said, Haman has found a way to get a law that all the Jewish people on a certain day are going to be destroyed. 
And so Esther says to Mordecai, her uncle, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Her fasting was indirectly for the nation, but her fasting was primarily, I need to get an audience with the king, and you see, to get an audience with the king was risky, because if he wasn't in a good mood, he could just take his scepter, which was his, his staff of authority, if he, done, if he did one thing with that, it meant your head get cut off. If he did something else with it, it meant you could come in to see him. But he had so much authority as king, he could annihilate anybody that didn't please him. And so the fast was to make sure that when she stood at the doorway and he would motion to her to come in, she would have found favor in his eyes. She said, if he doesn't, I accept that. At least I've tried. And if you want to know the end of that story, read the book, but I have to say that it worked. She did find favor with him, and she did get to share. She spent one day with him in, at mealtime, asked him for another mealtime day the next day, and got to share and saved her people from being destroyed. But fasting is what caused that man, that king, so Esther could find favor in his eyes. It's powerful people. We need to look at fasting as something that gives us a future in our ministry, if you're, whether it be church or a ministry, whatever it might be. And I'm going to go to the book of Ezra. Ezra was a prophet and a teacher who was in the Babylonian captivity at the same time as, as um, Daniel, three Hebrew children, Nehemiah. And Ezra, after they have been brought back, there have been a wave of people that come back from the Babylonian countryside to Israel. But now Ezra, a few years later, was bringing another group back and he had, had, had this people ready, but the journey from Babylon down to Canaan was quite a long journey. And so this is what he says. There by the Hava channel, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before God. So there's another time where fasting humbled. And, and ask God for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. Then he says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. In other words, he had said to the king, the Lord will protect us. We don't need your soldiers. And then he fasted and prayed, said, Lord, I've put you in a place 
to protect us, but I know you want to protect us. And the Lord answered their prayer, they get back. We need to pray for revival for our countries. I said a minute ago, there isn't a country that doesn't need our prayers. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the first half of 13, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. How do you do that? With fasting, with weeping and mourning. He said, rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, in the, in the Bible times when they wanted to show remorse or anger, they'd rip their clothes. And um, he said, I'd rather you ripped your heart. Rip your heart with sorrow. Rip your heart with deep intercession. And one of the ways, if we want to open up the area of weeping and mourning, that desire within us that has to grow within us, God didn't say he'd give us the weeping. He tells us to weep. He didn't say he'd give us the mourning. He tells us to mourn. And I believe the way you open that up and get it active is by fasting. It opens up the spirit within us to weeping and mourning. And he says in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What is Jeremiah saying? He's saying that if, that if we seek him with all of our hearts, like Joel said, with all of your heart. Jeremiah is saying, with all of your heart. Fasting, weeping, mourning. Our nations need revival. Our nations need to know a God that has, has a desire to bless us, has a desire to bestow on us the best of his kingdom. But we've chosen to go in our own way, by and large. We need to fast and pray and ask God to turn things around, to give our leadership insight, give them understanding of righteousness, give our leadership and our nations an understanding of the grace and mercies of God, to understand that the Bible declares that he'll keep us from our enemies if we'll only serve him. What's going on in the world right now is a direct result of turning away from God and the enemies start to overflow us and flood us and fill us with fear. A return to the Lord, he would take them captive and, and push them back and make them non-effective. And if you want to confirm that, read the book of Judges as one book. There's other times it recorded, but over and over again, when Israel got into trouble, and they would repent of the sin that got them into trouble, God would then defeat their enemies, either tell the armies what to do or defeat them supernaturally. And then the people would get lax and happy at home, safe and sound, go back into their sin after a few years, and again they would be turned over to the enemy. And the enemy had to be defeated by repentance, fasting and prayers, and then God would restore them again. That circles in the book of Judges about seven times. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that we need to learn from them. The thing that we should be looking at is how can I benefit the kingdom of God? How can I bring attention to the gloriness of the Lord? 
How can I do that when I'm fasting? And that should be our desire, to seek first the kingdom. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, selfishness, a me-first attitude, has no place in the kingdom of God. The first commandment has to do with putting God first in your life. The second commandment has to do with putting others before ourselves, uh, preferring others, as Paul said in Romans 12, loving your neighbors yourself at least. And you see, we come in after that somewhere, it doesn't really matter. As long as we put those two things first and second, we're, we're doing well. And so it's a, it's, if I'm fasting, I need to say, Lord, I want this for your glory. I'm asking for your sake. I may benefit from it, but I'm asking it so your kingdom looks like a great kingdom. So we're going to turn to, to um, Isaiah 58. I want to work from this scripture that's, that's the key scripture of fasting in all the, the gospels, all the scripture, pardon me. Okay, Isaiah said, in fast, starting at verse 1 in um, chapter 58, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Of course, that's the job of a prophet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Let's stop there for a minute. First of all, verse 5, they're in rebellion. And it says in verse 2, they seek him out day by day. And they're eager to know his ways. And they act as if they're a nation that does what is right. But the truth was they were doing what was wrong because they're called a rebellious nation. And Isaiah was to tell them of their sins. And they're acting as if they have not forsaken the Lord in verse 2 or forsaken his commandments. And they're asking God for decisions to be made. And they seek eager to come near him. But it's all for their own selfish motive. They want the best of God's kingdom, but they want to live for themselves. And it doesn't work that way. And then they say, when the prayers aren't answered and their fasting makes no changes, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? They're saying to God, you haven't said, well, what's wrong with you, God? Why have, why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? This is God's response. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Um, I might add, you say things that are cruel, unkind, like with their mouth. It doesn't always have to be the fist. And then God says, you cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Verse 5, only a day for a man to humble himself. 
Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable, acceptable to the Lord? You see, God is saying, you're going through all this religious stuff. You're doing the right stuff in a sense, the physical, but you see, your hearts are wrong. You're rebellious people and you're living in sin. You've rejected my commandments. So we need to realize that we have to have a heart that's pure before God. David knew this. Psalm 139, he cries out to the Lord, Search me, O Lord. Know my thoughts. Know my heart. Search me, O Lord. Christians need to do that. Not just when you want to fast, but frequently. Just take time to say, Lord, search my heart. I need to know. Then in verse 6 it says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Listen, to loose the chains of injustice. If you see injustice, Lord, I'm fasting to fret, set that person free from the injustice because it's a, it's a slam against your kingdom. They're a Christian, and what they're going through is a slam against your kingdom because you said you'd look after us. We need to break the, the cords there, the things that are binding them, the change, and unloose the cords of the yoke, which the cords of the yoke is not, that yoke is not God's yoke. It's a yoke of slavery of some kind, of injustice, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. When the yoke is broken, which is made out of wood in those days, you cannot put it back on again. You cannot be enslaved by it. And then he gets into verse 7. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? See, food comes up first here. And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. So he brings in something else. We should, be, we should be willing to sacrifice for someone that needs shelter. When you see the naked to clothe them, we should be able to say, I want to build, if I have two coats and somebody has none, Jesus said, give them your spare one. And then he says to turn away from your own, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. That's one that many of you don't like. We all have relatives that are mean to us, or unkind to us, or unfriendly maybe, or just simply avoid us. But you see, I think that last line in verse 7 says, you be nice to them anyway. It's going to be a sacrifice. And so in a sense, these things he's saying, giving food to the hungry, giving shelter where needed, giving clothes where needed, not rejecting your relatives just because they're not nice to you, didn't show up at your anniversary. Those things are sacrifices. The Lord says, when you do that, you're humbling yourself because you're saying to your old flesh, even though that's what you want to do, uh, ignore the homeless, ignore those without food, even though that's what it wants to do, to ignore your relatives that aren't nice to you, you say no to your flesh and do what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. There's tremendous promise from verse 8 on. He says, then, when we fast with the right motive, the right heart towards God, then your light will break forth like the dawn, 
and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, in other words, start treating people right, especially those that might be under your authority, with the pointer finger, malicious talk, that can be gossip, accusations. If you spend your, yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repair of broken walls, restores of streets with dwellings. What awesome promise that we can rebuild what we have lost through sin and disobedience. We can rebuild simply by fasting and prayer. We can rebuild lives. We can rebuild homes. We can rebuild our, our churches and our ministries. We can rebuild our communities. We can rebuild our countries with fasting and prayer. That's why the Bible says our warfare is not flesh and blood, spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when he was warning about wrong motives, he says in verse 16 of Matthew 6, when you fast, do not look sober as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Oh man, what stupid. And when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. See, the Pharisees, they a religious show all the time. And Jesus said, when people look at a Pharisee and he's got a disfigured face and he looks weak, and they say, he must be fasting. Oh, what a great godly man he is. The Bible says that's the only reward he has, is that somebody thought he's really spiritual. What a ripoff. If Jesus said no, the Father who sees you, he will reward you. Nobody else knows you're fasting. But he who sees you, he will reward you. I just read from Isaiah 58, the reward that he wants to bring on us. If in, in secret as much as possible to do our fasting. Yes, the person preparing meals for you should know you're not eating. But you see, if you do it to look spiritual to tell them, that's wrong. If you do it to save them the trouble, then that's different. I've grieved over the years when people have said, oh, I'm on a three-day fast. They didn't have to tell me that. 
But you see, they were hoping that I would see them as, wow, they're really spiritual. And that's a reward. I tried not to do that, by the way. I'm not sure what my response was. But I'm not impressed if you tell me you're fasting. I see you have just missed God's blessing. I'll give you mine if you want. But you just missed God's. Let's move on to Matthew 9. Verse 16, when you fast, he said. It says, when we fast and pray for our church or ministry, we are not fasting and praying for an institution to be made big or successful. Rather, we are fasting and praying for the kingdom of God to expand. And our church or ministry is a small section of that kingdom that we are responsible for. Fasting humbles us, allowing God to keep us up to date on what he's doing. If you were fasting for, for the churches of your city, but the church up the street that has just um, accepted two or three of your members and, and has become a competition to you, but they start to be blessed by the Lord, would you rejoice with them or would you be jealous? You might say, well, I fasted for, hopefully our church would be. We need to recognize it's the kingdom of God that's important. If the church on the other side of town receives the blessing, we, don't, we should rejoice in that blessing. When a soul is saved in another church, we should rejoice. It should be just as exciting as if they get saved in my church. Let's read from, I'm going to look at Luke 5. Just in the same conversation with fasting, he describes the, the foolishness of sewing a patch of old garments and putting new wine into old wineskins. And it's interesting that Matthew in chapter 9 records this, Mark in chapter 2 records it, and Luke in chapter 5 records it. I've chosen for no specific reason to read Luke. Luke 5, 36 to 39. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins and no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. I've got a few things to say about that. I am convinced that when the Holy Spirit has done things in our church over that period of history, let me go back to Azusa Street in the early 1900s. Let me talk about the uh, Abert, uh, the. Uh, Welsh revival in 1904 and 5. Let me talk about the Hebrides revival in the 40s. Let me talk about the, the, um, the, um, the days of refreshing that they experienced out in Western Canada around the same time. And then there's the, the charismatic movement of the late 60s, early 70s, which lasted for many years. What happened to those? They all peter out. They all seem to dry up after a certain period of time. And this is why I think 
we have a problem. We tried taking the new wine and pouring it into the old wineskin. The old wineskin being, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we deal with people. This is the way we do church. This is the format. This is the government structure. All the things that we've done for years. The Holy Spirit comes and does something different. But we try to pour it back in to the old wineskins. We try to take this new piece of garment and we stitch it and sew it onto the same old garment that failed us in the first place. The same old wineskin that God wasn't satisfied with. That's why he went ahead and poured out his spirit for renewal on us. But you see, the new wineskin isn't necessarily getting rid of the organ or bringing in the guitar, singing new songs, getting rid of the old songs, changing the order of government. It's not necessarily that. It might be, but not necessarily. The thing that God is looking for to be a new wineskin, that through fasting and prayer, you see those three times that I mentioned to you in the gospel, Jesus connects them to when you fast. And he says, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. So when you fast, this is what I want to happen because when I've poured out my spirit on you and there's something new and fresh is happening, then you start fasting and praying. Then you start saying, Lord, how do, how, where's the new wineskin for this? What do you want us to change? What has to be taken out? What has to be thrown away? What has to be installed as something new? In order for us to know, how do we put new wine into new wineskins? because the, the new wineskins would stretch as the wine expanded. If you put new wine into old wineskins that already had expanded, they would burst and the wine was spilled and spoiled. And I've seen that happen, where what God has done in many different moves of the Spirit, I've read books on a number of them, what God did was plug back into the old wineskin, sewn onto the old cloth, and it dried up on them because that old wineskin had served its purpose, had ran the course, and it was time for a new one. I think this is what's going on. I think God says, now that the enemy has figured out ways to stop the church from moving forward, I'm going to give you a whole new wineskin that he knows nothing about, and it'll take him a number of years to figure out how to stop it. But you see, we just dumped everything into the old wineskin. There will always be people that resist fasting. They'll resist the new wineskins. They'll resist the new cloth because they'll say, no, no, the old wine was better. That's what I read in that last verse 39. No one after drinking old wine wants the new. It's, I've seen it. I've seen the old wineskins lovers. Oh, no, we've always done it this way. And they can be an enemy, even though they're down their hearts, they love the Lord. They're so used to their program and their way, they can't get out of the old wineskin. And brothers and sisters, a new movement of the Spirit almost requires a whole new setup. We call it church, we call it ministry, I don't care. I'm not saying it always does. There are churches that were changed in the last move of the Spirit. 
and, and good things have come from it. But the enemy wants what we're doing, so he understands what we're doing. He's figured it out. And we need to understand that we have to be a step ahead of him. And only through fasting, getting rid of our old carnal nature, putting it to death, say, Lord, I'm so serious about doing what you want me to do. I'm so serious about how to handle this new wine you've given us. I'm so serious about this, this new cloth I've got. Lord Jesus, please give me drugs. I'm fasting and praying to get your direction, to get your will, to know what you want to do. And so, Father, I'm not going to depend on our government to change rules and regulations to make it better for us. I'm not going to depend on my community. I'm going to depend on you. I'm not going to depend on the elders in our denomination or the, the older fellows in the church that are set in their ways. I'm not going to, I have to depend on you, Lord, to tell me. I'm hoping that there won't just be you, that there'll be an eldership of people that have come together in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and are asking God, and they're saying, we want to see the new wineskin. We need something to put new wine into. We need the new wineskin. We have failed God so often. He pours out His Spirit. He waits and sees what we do. We pour it into the old wineskin. How discouraged He must be. Today, Lord God, Give the church out there as you pour out your spirit in different churches, different groups, different communities, different countries, as you pour it out, Lord God. Please, Lord, begin to show them the new way, the wineskin that needs to be developed by your spirit through understanding you, through prayer, through fasting, so that they will do the thing that has to be done in order for that wine not to be spoiled and wasted. That should be our prayer. It's not for me, Lord. It's for your kingdom. If I have to go through something like that and nobody ever knows my name, that's fine. I want it for your kingdom, Lord. I want it for your kingdom. Yundi Cho, the pastor in Korea that one time maybe still had the largest church in the world, in his early ministry, in crying out to the Lord to bring blessing on his ministry, he spent two years in his church building, not going home, fasting and praying that the Lord would make his church a witness to the world. And I want to tell you, the Lord has done that. The Lord has done it. Father, put into the hearts of people listening to this series, Put into their hearts, Lord God, something that would say, to see your spirit move on this place, whether it be a country or the world, or a community, or a home, to see you move, Lord God, is important to me. And Lord, I'm asking you to hear my prayers, hear my fasting, so that when you do come, I will know that you have answered. In the name of Jesus, amen.
I've been doing um, some, some teaching on fasting. I've, this would be part three of my teaching, and I finished off last time talking about fasting in relation to the new wine and the old wineskins and so on. And I finished up by explaining that the enemy figures out what we're doing after a period of time, whether it be in your Christian life or in the church, your family. And so he starts to set up plans to hinder, to stop, destroy what you're doing. And so God, uh, every once in a while, pours out a new spirit on his church, and it's called new wine. And it's a result of Jesus said, when you fast. He didn't say if. He said, when you fast. And so we know that Fasting has something to do with God moving, producing new wine that needs to be poured into new wineskins, which is the new wineskin is discovered as well through fasting, knowing what the new structure, it may not be physical, but new attitudes, new approaches to presenting the gospel, discipling, whatever it might be. You see, the enemy um, wants to figure out how to stop what you're doing in God's kingdom. And we can keep ahead of him by knowing the heart of God. And fasting is one of the things that, that brings us into a deeper spiritual understanding of what God wants for us. The trouble is, whenever we have an outpouring of the Spirit, and we find out what God wants and, and changing things in order to be a new wineskin for that new wine, we always have people that reject it and stand against it and don't want it. That's unfortunate because many of them are, are good people, love God, but they're locked into a system and it's too bad. But then again, just as the disciples didn't understand that Jesus was going to die and be raised again. His disciples, even though Jesus said it plainly, they still didn't understand it. Many of the people, whether it be today or the last movement, they don't understand that God wants to do a new thing among us and they should be open to it. If we've, if we've missed that, we're probably wrong in how we think the second coming's gonna um, happen, we might even be wrong if we try to figure out what God's going to do tomorrow because we need to know his heart for each day. I'm going to tell you a little bit of history just um, to indicate how powerful this can be because I ended up last time teaching about how, how fasting can bring revival to our nations. Because of a threatened invasion by the French in the mid-1700s in England, the English government called the people to a day of solemn fasting and prayer. On Friday, February the 6th, 1756, John Wesley records in his journals, the fast day was a glorious day, such as London has scarce seen since the Restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayers. 
Now, these leaders saw it as a spiritual problem when the French were threatening to invade. They didn't see it as physical. They saw it spiritual. And the invasion never happened. Remember again, our conflict is not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual. I believe the Bible calls the church to fasting and prayer. I think I've said enough to underline that. In Revelation 5, verse 10, he says, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign while on the earth. You see, John is talking about us, his church. He's, the Holy Spirit has made us to be in his kingdom, but to be priests to serve him. And part of that serving, all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, was fasting and prayer. And you see, the church, over the years, we've made some terrible mistakes. We've said to the world, you're living in sin, when we ourselves were living in sin. And in many situations, we still are. We've said to the, the, church, the world, your nakedness is before God. Not just a physical nakedness, but a total absence of righteousness. And righteousness is often called a cloak that we wear. And yet, there's been a lack of righteousness in the church. I believe any church that is aware of the fact that there's sin in the church that can't be rooted out by confronting and by talking whatever it might be with counselors or pastors, I believe the answer is prayer. This is what Arthur Wallace, he's a man that wrote a book back in the 60s called God's Chosen Fast. His name is Arthur Wallace. The book is God's Chosen Fast. I recommend every Christian have one. They're available. Just, go in, just put that into Google. You get lots of places where it's available. This is what he says on page 37. If there is a local church threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness abounding, if conversions are few and backslidings frequent, would not this be a time when leaders should call that church to prayer and fasting? If it can work in England to turn a situation around, to keep an enemy from invading, if it can work in your church. And I know it works in the church. I've seen it. I've heard testimonies of things that have happened in the church because of fasting and prayer. Things that seem to be not solvable by human effort, but by fasting and prayer. I believe firmly that if we want to see New Testament results in our churches, we need to accept and practice New Testament ways. And the way of fasting and prayer is definitely one of the things Old Testament promotes. New Testament says we should. When you pray, Jesus said. When you fast, pardon me. There needs to be an awareness among us 
that our, knob, our job is not done just because we had a successful Sunday morning service and there's three new visitors that we're able to talk to and may be encouraged to join our church. We need to look at our whole community and say, Lord, is there anything within the church that would drive the world away? Is there anything within the church that they would look at and simply say to themselves, we do that in our sinful life. They're doing it in their religious life. Why should I go there? The church needs to be pure. In the Welsh revival of 1904, the spirit of repentance fell on parts of that nation. People that in the church were smitten by the Holy Spirit, crying out to God for forgiveness, totally disrupting their services. And the man that led it, Evan Robbins, he, he knew how to do it. The young man that had wisdom and repentance was happening in that church of Christian people repenting of their sinful ways. As a result of that, people in the community that, that had vowed they would never go into a church were walking on the street, were sitting in their homes, and that spirit of repentance hit them the way he had hit them in the church. And those people would come running into the church. What do I have to do to be saved? You see, that's what happens when a church cleanses. Then God can trust us with new converts. You know, the adoption people, they won't let you adopt a child unless your home is in good order. You can afford, there's harmony in the home. There's all the different standards they have. Why should God give new children into the church if there's discord and there's disunity and backbiting and gossip and sin abounding? Why should he give new people into that where we can make them just like we are? No, he wants the church to be cleansed first. It's reasonable that he should ask that. It's reasonable that he would want a pure home to put these new converts into. I was shocked a few years ago. I was asked to do a weekend at a church not too far from where I live. And they asked me to teach on revival because they said we've had intercessors interceding for months and we believe it's time that you came and spoke to us to bring revival. I didn't know then, but I know now. There was disharmony in the church. There was people against what we were speaking. There was people against the prayer group that were interceding. They weren't very happy with their pastor at the time. And nothing happened. Even though I spoke hard. Nothing happened. Why should God put a new born first time they've ever heard a religion, Christianity like, into a church that's turmoil and troubled? The answer is he, he's wise enough not to. Because if a person has come to the Lord, and it doesn't work for them because they see bad examples, they're not taught, they're not helped. It's very difficult to ever get them saved again a second time. 
because they basically said, I tried that. It doesn't work. I've asked pastors who talk to me about revival. So I say to them, do you have a new converts class? Do you have a new converts material that when new converts come in, you can do exactly what the last chapter of Matthew, the last few verses say, you're supposed to baptize them and disciple them? Are you ready to do that? In every case that I've asked, except for one, they said, no, we don't have anything. What do you expect? If you have a new baby in the home, to just stick it in a room with all the other children and let it be there? They have to eat the same food the 8-year-old and the 12-year-old's eating. They, they have to sit up and, and watch the same program, go to the same school. Of course not. They have to be brought up from an infant. And when Jesus said they're to be baptized, he meant it. It wasn't an option. We're to be discipling people. And I don't believe all your fasting and prayer that's supposed to bring revival is going to happen until we're prepared to disciple the people the Lord gives to us. He said, get them baptized. Baptism is not an option. If, you don't, if you're not separated from your old way of life through death and burial, you will never make it in the new life. You need to be baptized as soon as possible. What's the word in the book of Acts? What are you waiting for? They said to Paul, get up and be baptized. The family of Cornelius, immediately they were baptized. So we know God is calling us to obedience. Again, I refer to that book. Arthur Wallace, God's Chosen Fast. Please read it, Christian. Please get a burden. God wants a people that are sold up for him, are willing to say their, their old flesh, I'll tell you what to eat. I'll tell you what to give to the poor. I'll tell you what to give to your friends and your relatives especially. If we want New Testament results, we need to do what the New Testament says. In Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, these are the apostles and disciples all together, and it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Okay, we're in, the, we're in the beginning of Christianity here. It's going well. Thousands are being saved. They're still fasting. What were they fasting for? It doesn't say. But this is the result. The Holy Spirit said, sit apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, again, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Do you understand from that? They were released into ministry because God said so. God said so as a, as a result of them saying, we say no to our flesh, to the comforts of food, and we're listening to you, God. And God said, yes. I have a work that I want Paul and Barnabas to do. Again in Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them, that's the elders, in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. 
when they say they put their trust in the Lord, that means they have been fasting and praying. It means they have already understood who the, who the elders are going to be. And now they're fasting and praying to commission them. This is New Testament pattern, folks. If we try to build the church any other way, Jesus said, we're a thief and a robber. And John chapter 10, verse 1, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Let me stop there. If I'm trying to establish who's in ministry, I'm trying to establish who should be an elder, I'm trying to establish what should be happening, but I, I ignore fasting and prayer. I'm entering by a different gate because I'm not consulting the Father. I'm not going through the door, which is Jesus. I'm trying to do it on what I can see. Oh, he would make a good elder. I'm sure he would. Well, you see, when Samuel went to appoint a king in Jesse's household, who had eight sons, everyone that Samuel said, oh, the oldest, yes, he's the one. God says, no way. Oh, the second one, he's the, no. He went down for seven brothers. Everyone was no. Why? Because God had a man called David that he wanted to put in as king. Samuel was going by outward appearance. God was going by what was in the heart. They'd had one experience where they went by appearance, and that was Saul. He turned out bad because it was man's way. I've made that mistake in our ministry. Appointing people, assigning people without prayer and fasting. God, forgive me because I paid the price for it. He says, the man, in verse 2, who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. This is what I believe that's saying. The man who will say, Lord Jesus, I am fasting and praying to get your heart. Jesus said, you're coming through the right gate. The watchman, in verse 3, opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Oh, I, I, I know that a man who is appointed by God to be an elder, to be a leader, God's going to say, I'll cause the people to listen to him and be led by him. May not always be 100%, but God will honor that. He promises that. Verse 4, when he has brought out his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they'll never follow a stranger. Some, a Saul that I put in because he looked great, an elder brother because he looked great. What happened? Why don't the people respect him? Why don't they follow him? Answer is, we didn't know the heart of God who to put into leadership. Verse 5, but they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. You wonder why people are leaving your church? Maybe the man in there isn't there because God wanted him there. He was there because he looked good to the people that were appointing him. I'm just saying maybe. Jesus said in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
Yes, we say that's the new conversion. Yes, but that save comes from the Greek that means we will be kept safe from mistakes. We will be kept safe from the attacks of the enemy to give us wrong people, wrong input into our lives. A life of fasting and prayer can bring security to a ministry. That scripture that I just read, your people will know you, they will listen to you, they will trust you, they will follow you. That's what will happen when a man who's called by God because we know from fasting and praying what the heart of God is, come into a church and at least there will be a people among that group that will know and listen. There may be people that leave and you might say, oh dear, we lost a we lost hundred people when that new pastor came. It's because they don't recognize the work of God in a man's life. And so they reject it and maybe follow some other man that they know. That's all right. God's in charge. I'm not. Prayer and fasting is the gateway into God's heart. And from his heart, his will is revealed. When Jesus questioned as to why his disciples didn't fast, he replied, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. He said, then they will fast. He has been taken from us. He's waiting to come again. In the meantime, we're called to fast. We're called to go to the Lord and say, Lord, about this afternoon, what do we do? Lord, about tomorrow, what do we do? Lord, we need some more elders. Who do you have in mind, Lord? We're going to call the congregation to fast and pray because we're wanting you to send to us the people that you want, not what we want, but what you want in this church or in this ministry. You see, God has a plan for every body that's been raised up that we would call the church. God had a plan for it. It was in the heart before you ever thought of doing it yourself. But if we say, thanks, Lord, I'll take it from here, it's going to crumble and fall through your fingers. I want to say this about the Bible. It tells us that historically, God literally changed his mind about some things because of fasting and prayer. You might not believe me, but let's look at Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites, who he was going to, remember he got in the boat first and went the wrong way. When he finally went, when, they, when he told them about God's judgment, God said, I'm going to destroy the city. But when they believed, they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, and they fasted, they declared a fast. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Man's fasting changed God's plan. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And verse 14 says, who knows? 
he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing instead of the curse. We need to allow God to change our minds. We need to ask God to change our nation. We need to look at God and say, Lord, this disaster that your word says will come upon our nation. We're asking the Lord, bring repentance. Bring a spirit of repentance. Bring brokenness. Bring revival, Lord God, so we can turn. And instead of the curse of judgment, you can bring a blessing on us. Oh, Lord God, thank you, Jesus. Lisa Bevere says this, I quote her. A diet changes the way you look. A fast changes the way you see. And Father, my prayer for these people that are listening and watching, my prayer is that they would begin to take to you, Lord God, in fasting and prayer. They would bring to you, Lord God, what you promised, that you will hear us when we seek you with all our hearts, mind, and strength. In the name of Jesus, amen. website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.